Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I am your host, Daniel McDonald. This year, the Supreme Court of the United States delivered another slate of contentious opinions on issues including abortion rights, who decides presidential elections, the legality of efforts to dismantle DACA, and who has the right to see President Trump's taxes. Joining me tonight to discuss this latest term of the highest court in the land are court watchers and University System of Georgia professors Jahan Eljabagi and Matt Ressing. Jahan Eljabagi, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College, and Matt Ressing, Lecturer in Legal Studies at the Terry College of Business at the University of Georgia. Thank you all for joining me today on Georgia College Connections. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, so, of course, we are talking about the, I, I like to call it the 2019-2020 term of the Supreme Court. And as I often do, I want to just take a, a broad look at the uh, term and start our conversation by asking you all, what major themes came out of this term of the Supreme Court? One of the biggest themes that everybody was watching for this term is how conservative would the court be? We had a number of very consequential cases with ideological splits on things like abortion rights, on things like LGBT rights and employment law, on things like religious freedom. So things that tend to divide a court that has been divided for some time. And we now had the potential for a solidly conservative Supreme Court. Anthony Kennedy, who had long been seen as the swing vote on the court, although he, he really didn't like that title, but it meant that he kind of sat in the middle between four members of the court that would tend to jump to the conservative uh, ideology on divisive issues, four members that would tend to jump to the liberal side of that ideology. And he would go back and forth, mostly with the conservatives, but sometimes with the uh, liberals. So with Kennedy gone and replaced by Kavanaugh, who was a Trump pick, and in many ways was appointed to not be Kennedy, to be a solid, reliable conservative vote, the question was, is the five-member conservative majority going to just run roughshod over you know, the four liberals on all these consequential cases? So that's one thing everybody was watching for. And also, you know, would Chief Justice Roberts allow that to happen? Uh, very conservative uh, Chief Justice. Uh, at the time when Kennedy was on the court, he tended to vote with the more conservative justices. But there was question that though, with Kennedy gone, we try and seek out more of a middle role. And so, of course, you set up that question about the direction that the court is going in. Was the answer to that question as clear cut as it may have seemed before the term actually started? No, I don't think a lot of people that have been watching Robert carefully and, uh, and, and particularly, you know, what he said about where he sees the role of the Supreme Court, and his role on the Supreme Court. I don't think uh, most people expected that there were going to be solid 5-4 conservative majority opinions across the board. But I think that uh, he surprised people. Uh, in fact, you know, astonished some conservatives in, in a way that, you know, even had him being accused of treason, in a sense, by going against them on some some pretty big cases, uh, particularly uh, cases involving reproductive rights and cases involving LGBT rights. We also saw, and I'll probably talk more about this later, his real effort and probably some success in building consensus. So even though we saw, you know, 5-4 opinions, we also saw a lot of consensus opinions, a lot of 7-2s or 6-3s. And even on some of these very contentious ideological issues uh, where you might have expected a 5-4, occasionally Roberts was able to uh, bring a conservative over to the liberal side or bring some liberals over to the conservative side. Matt, I did want to add that he authored the opinion in the DACA case as well. So that was a 5-4 split in that particular case. And as Matt was saying that, you know, people who have followed Roberts or just justices in general – I think people 
assume that there are more 5-4 splits than there actually are. And so in many cases, the judges are building this consensus. They are having these dialogues. They are reaching agreement where people think they're just completely split down these ideological lines when, in fact, they're not. They have different opinions on different issues. And um, though Roberts did author some opinions and build some consensus where it may not have been anticipated, I think for a lot of legal scholars it wasn't completely unusual. And, and most Supreme Court opinions are, you know, 9-0 or 8-1. Uh, we just don't focus on them as much because they're not the really contentious ones. They tend to involve minutia over bankruptcy law and things that nobody, you know, doesn't make Boy. it on TV. <laughs> exactly. But uh, I think we actually have more 5-4 cases this term than normal. And I think that's actually because uh, conservative groups, uh, have been teeing up these cases for a while with the expectation that the court was shifting rightward. So you want to talk a little about case baiting, Jahan? Oh, just that concept that uh, people are essentially trying to create the perfect storm to have a case reach the Supreme Court. Instead of sort of naturally emerging, they're purposely putting forth the facts or a, a conflict so that and a particular ideological issue can reach the Supreme Court. And this concept has been coined of case baiting. So there's a number of cases that have been really set up to arrive at the court this term. And uh, these cases, you know, like abortion cases, like LGBT rights cases, they all kind of hit at once. And, and part of that was intentional because conservative advocacy groups saw an opening here. And, and might you talk about that just a little bit more and talk about the timeline that would allow a case to move up uh, towards the court, especially as we've seen in the last recent history, uh, when there are a number of justices retiring and new justices confirmed to the court? Um, how much foresight does one need to employ when engaging in case baiting? Well, you have to think about it. It's part of strategy. And not every case is this way. Some cases just happen to end up before the Supreme Court because that's the end game at any you know, appellate process. So if I'm accused of a crime and I appeal my conviction all the way up to the Supreme Court, I'm not calculating of when it's going to arrive. I, I really have no choice. Right. But on um, the other hand, if you have an ideological issue such as abortion and you know that there's a conservative president who is being elected and there are some seats that then are open and are nominated to the Supreme Court or you assume they're more conservative justices and you believe that there's the swing to a conservative majority, then that abortion case is now perfect perhaps, in their view, to arrive at the Supreme Court. Well, I think you took my bait, Jahan, because I wanted to um, <laughs> illustrate this with an example that is, is local to us. There is an abortion law that was passed by the Georgia General Assembly, I believe in 2019, is called a heartbeat bill that would restrict abortion once a heartbeat can be detected. And that was recently struck down um, by a lower court. Um, but um, there was... Uh, little chance that it would not be struck down when legislators made that case. Is it possible for y'all to speak to this idea of case baiting using this uh, local example that is also being mirrored by other conservative-controlled uh, states around here? Court has been conservative for some time. Mm -hmm. So you know, there, are, there are kind of two ways that you, you want to call it case baiting, but it, they, you know, cases can be planned to arrive at the Supreme Court at a certain time. That can be through legislation. So state legislatures pass laws that they expect to be challenged. In fact, they may pass laws that they know uh, under su current Supreme Court precedent would be unconstitutional or illegal uh, with the idea of, well, we're going to pass the law, come and get us, and we think that by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, we'll have some favorable people there. The other ways cases can be set up is because uh, it's very expensive to bring a case all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, a defendant in a criminal case, for example, they may have pro bono lawyers you know, taking their case. But most people in civil cases, you know, they can't really afford to argue their case all the way up to the Supreme Court, even assuming the Supreme Court takes it. So those cases are often carefully planned by advocacy groups that could be, you know, the ACLU or the ACLJ. I mean, there, there's, there's different groups 
uh, you know, legal groups, groups of, of lawyers that operate on both sides of the political spectrum. And they essentially seek out plaintiffs to bring these cases at the appropriate times. And this is not new. This has been going on for quite some time. You know, Brown v. Board of Education uh, was a, a carefully orchestrated case where the plaintiffs were selected in, in bringing it. You're listening to a Supreme Court recap with Georgia College Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics, Jahan el and UGA Legal Studies Lecturer, Matt Ressing. We've got more to talk about on this edition of Georgia College Connections, so stay tuned. So as y'all talked about um, this idea of setting up legal battles in hopes that they would make it to the Supreme Court and be able to strike down laws, uh, of course, that operates on this idea of going against precedents. And that uh, played a, a large role in what could have been a surprise ruling that uh, really made a lot of headlines and set up you know, future battles. And that would have been present in the case of uh, Russo versus June Medical Services. Uh, can you talk about the role that precedence or deference to earlier rulings played in what has been a defining battle over abortion or reproductive rights? Well, as I mentioned, the, the Supreme Court has been conservative for some time now. And conservative groups, particularly groups that want to restrict the right of women to have abortions have been trying to bring cases and in some ways uh, encouraging state legislatures to pass laws then to bring these challenges. So we had a case last term called Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstat, and that involved a Texas law that put some limitations on abortion services. Now, it didn't say abortion is illegal. Again, these, these cases are, are being brought in a very strategic way and I think the idea of sophisticated folks bringing cases to the court was that we're not going to get a knockout of abortion rights. The justices aren't going to have an appetite to completely overturn Roe v. Wade or Casey versus Planned Parenthood. But for some time, conservative groups and, and conservative legislatures have been forcing these cases where they chip away at the rights. So Whole Women's Health involved a Texas law that said if you're going to perform abortions in the state of Texas, you have to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital, which may sound pretty innocuous, but that's actually very difficult to do. And none of the you know, current abortion providers had these admitting privileges. It's unclear whether they even would be uh, able to get them. So the result was that if upheld would be that pretty much there would be no abortion services in the state of Texas. The Supreme Court struck down that Texas state law under the precedent of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which said that you can't have undue burdens on a woman's right to receive an abortion. So uh, they found that this was an undue burden. Mostly uh, it was Kennedy, I believe, that cast the swing vote in this case. So 5-4 with Kennedy joining the liberals to strike this down. Well, Kennedy's gone now. So... The state of Louisiana saw this as an opportunity to bring pretty much the exact same case before this new Supreme Court with Kavanaugh instead of Kennedy, thinking, okay, slam dunk. You know, the fifth vote against this is gone and replaced by a reliable conservative vote. Uh, so Louisiana's law was almost exactly the same as Texas's law. The twist here was that Justice Roberts, who had voted to uh, uphold the Texas uh, anti-abortion law, in this case, switched over and voted to strike down the very similar Louisiana statute. So some people said Roberts 
has become Kennedy. He's the new Kennedy. In fact, he's voting against the way he voted the very last term. And many conservatives saw this as a betrayal. Well, there's one twist that I feel like I'm missing in here, and it kind of goes back to the use of precedents in deciding what cases will make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, there's been much conversation about the June medical case being nearly identical to some of the issues that were looked at in the Hellerstadt case. What was the twist that would get such a similar case back on the docket so quickly in what role does well, precedence play in in granting cert or getting a case before the supreme court the cert process is very opaque so the supreme court can take whatever cases it wants it's not forced to take any cases in fact it takes very few of the cases that applied for cert and they tend to take cases where there's been a circuit split, where the country is divided, and where it's a very big social issue. So in this case, we, we check all those boxes. However, you're right. It's a little unusual for the Supreme Court to take a case that they have just recently decided, or at least decided in a similar fashion. But they're not prevented from doing that. And the fact the Supreme Court is the only court in the nation that can overturn Supreme Court precedent. And they can overturn it even if they just applied it the previous term. So I think this would be very unusual in that the court would do a complete 180 on its precedent, but there's nothing stopping it from doing so. Now, when the Supreme Court decided to take the case and grant cert, a lot of people thought, okay, this is the conservatives agreeing to take the case, knowing that they're going to change their mind and strike it down. Basically, Roberts has already made up his mind. However, it doesn't take a majority of the Supreme Court to grant cert. It only takes four justices. And we'll never know which four justices decided to grant cert. But the suspicion is that it was the four conservative justices essentially trying to force Robert's hand and say, okay, you voted against it last time. We're going to put you on the spot and see if you vote against it again. However, it didn't work out that way. So Justice Roberts, in this case, voted with the liberals and struck down the Louisiana law based on this idea of precedent. In fact, you know, he joined the majority opinion, which was written by Breyer and signed onto a full by Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan, which are typically seen as the court's liberal way. But he didn't join on to much of their reasoning. He kind of wrote a separate concurring opinion that basically said, yeah, I would have upheld the law in Texas. And therefore, you know, ideologically, I would uphold this law, except we just decided it. And I think precedent means something. And we shouldn't be overruling our opinions from last year. That was essentially his reasoning. And it gives you a kind of a broader view into Robert's psyche and his role that he sees himself playing on the court. And so with Robert's coming down on the side of looking at prior court rulings on these large issues. What does this mean for the future of the right to an abortion as these states continue to make laws that either chip away at or seek to knock out Roe v. Wade? And what can we expect perhaps in the you know, next coming years? I think Roberts is going to be reticent to overrule Roe v. Wade, overrule Planned Parenthood v. Casey. He certainly doesn't want to see that headline, you know, Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade. I don't think that he will have a problem with continuing to chip away at these rights. So I think this case of June Medical Services is somewhat of a one-off. You know, Roberts is saying, if you really push me that hard, I'm going to push back. But if you want to bring a different case, it's not quite of an undue burden as this Texas case. Maybe a heartbeat bill. You know, we'll see. I think he is going to be willing to continue the chipping away of reproductive rights as long as it's not a knockout punch. You are listening to a Supreme Court recap with Georgia College Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics, Jahan el and UGA Legal Studies Lecturer, Matt Ressing. We've got more to talk about on this edition of Georgia College Connections, so stay tuned.
in, in a sense, and I'm going to get cheeky here, but it seems like um, Roberts is not only trying to exert his presence on the court, but perhaps even go further into an ideas that he has about society. This is, is a pet idea that I've been uh, trying to promote, and I call it Roberts' Rules of Order. Um, one of the other <laughs> things that has come out of this last um, term was an attempt to measure uh, the power that Chief Justice John Roberts has in comparison to Supreme Courts of the past. I was wondering if y'all might um, address this uh, topic and, and talk about the ways that court watchers around the country are trying to quantify and qualify the role that John Roberts has uh, on this Supreme Court and perhaps even the legislative process. Just generally, I think Justice Roberts is a level-headed justice, and I think he seeks to be very thoughtful and deliberate and to encourage his fellow members to do the same. And I think that uh, demeanor generally is something that everyone in this country should be thankful for, um, that the person sitting in that seat is someone who is thoughtful and deliberate and trying to bring his fellow jurors together. I mean, there was definitely some cases this term that when I heard Justice Tom or Justice uh, Roberts had authored the opinion, or even Justice Gorsuch in one particular case, in this climate right now where we're all sort of hunkered under our desks or we're out on the streets fighting, it was uplifting to know that these justices who some people may have assumed would go one way were in fact making these really thoughtful and measured decisions not just joining, but being the author of these opinions. And, and I think it just says a lot for the judicial branch of government that our Supreme Court is functional and doing what it was designed to do under his leadership. Well, I, I agree completely with Jahan, but I also want to caution anyone thinking that Roberts is going to turn liberal or that he's even going to be the Kennedy of this court, I think we'll be thoroughly disappointed. I think particularly as time goes on, we're going to see him siding more and more with uh, conservative blocks. I don't think he wanted to do it right out of the gate. Again, I think he has a lot of respect for stare decisis and precedent and also the perception of the court. Uh, in some of these cases we're talking about where he, he bucked you know, the, the conservative elite, I think we, we really saw him being pushed into a corner where he felt he was being asked to go further than he was willing to go. And, and Dan, you and I talked about this last year with the census case, uh, where he felt that, you know, I might be willing to allow the Trump administration to add a question about citizenship on the census, but they haven't even given me, a, you know, a fig leaf here. They really haven't gone through the motion of showing why it was necessary they're basically just asking me to rubber stamp this, and I'm not willing to do that. I think the June Medical Services is a similar case, uh, and I don't think it's an indication that he's going to be particularly protective of abortion rights in the future. I just think he didn't like that they're essentially throwing in my face and saying, hey, now you have to overturn this one-year-old precedent. And he said, you know, no, I don't. The, the perception of the court is more important to me than any particular you know, ideology that I have. And you just set us up for a, a good way to explore that uh, through an example. But before we do, I wanted to talk about some of the mechanics and how the chief justice is able to wield uh, the power that's granted to him. Mm -hmm. Well, the powers of the chief justice, aside from being very visible, one of the biggest powers they have is the ability to assign opinions when they're in the majority. So as long as Roberts is in the majority, he can decide who writes the case. And this term, Roberts was in the majority almost all of the time. So some of that may be strategic. We talked about him putting together different coalitions, and part of that may be his decision of who writes the opinion or you know, when he's going to write the opinion. And you're correct in that, you know, what they say in the opinion really matters a lot to lawyers. It matters almost, you know, not at all to anybody else. You know, the general public just wants to know, what do they decide? But lawyers know that the next case that comes before the court is not just going to rely on the, you know, who won, who lost in that previous case. 
they're going to rely on what did the majority opinion actually say, what tests did it set out for future cases. So when Roberts either writes the opinion or assigns the opinion, he has some influence over what that opinion says. And he may be willing to join with you know, the more liberal justices, but that may come at a price. The price may be that an opinion that would have been written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now written by John Roberts. And he may not say some of the things that she would have said. He may say some things that she would not totally agree with. And then she is put in the position of having to decide, am I going to go along with this? Or am I going to try and write a concurring opinion, but thereby maybe weaken the majority opinion? And, uh, you know, once we start talking about cases, I think the case of Bostock v. Clayton County is a great example of this, where Roberts and Gorsuch joined the four more liberal justices and delivered what, you know, many might consider a liberal opinion. But we might question, what did the liberals have to give up by getting those two extra votes and allowing Roberts to assign the opinion to Gorsuch? Yeah, I'd really love to start digging into the cases if we could, especially in that particular case. Mm -hmm. Let's go with the majority on that one. And uh, please, let's talk about uh, the, the Bostock case uh, as it has hints of home as it uh, was started in Clayton County here. That's right. Yeah, so Gerald Bostock, who's uh, these, these were several different cases, three different cases that got consolidated. But it became known as Bostock v. Clayton County. Bostock was a child welfare advocate who worked for Clayton County. And the facts are, are a little bizarre. Uh, he had joined a gay softball league and you know, people knew about it. I don't know if it was on Facebook or whatever. And then his employer fired him for quote unquote unbecoming conduct after learning he had joined this softball league that identified as a, as a gay or at least gay friendly softball league. But there were two other plaintiffs as well. There was a skydiver, uh, Donald Zarda, who was fired by a skydiving company when he came out as gay. Uh, and then Amy Stevens, who was fired by a funeral home after she presented as a man and then said, I want to, I want to work and live full-time as a woman. And once she announced that to them, they fired her. So all three of these cases uh, were consolidated, and the, the big question was, can you fire someone based on their sexual orientation or gender identity? Does the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, cover that when it says you can't discriminate because of sex? I guess the one question that I would have is um, it seems that that opinion was written by Justice Gorsuch, and that put him at the ire of some of the conservatives uh, who saw him as uh, one who would uh, help solidify a, a conservative approach to the cases that are being brought before the Supreme Court. Uh, can you talk about some of the philosophies uh, that he used to write his opinion on that case? First, you have to consider why did Roberts assign the, the opinion to Gorsuch instead of writing it himself? It's still tempting to just think Roberts found out that there was another conservative coming along for the ride on this one and said, great, you, know, you write the opinion, and I can kind of avoid that scrutiny. But they also try and break up the opinions. Uh, every term, is, they, they try and make it roughly even. So every justice gets, you know, in this term, I think it was about seven or eight opinions. Uh, and, and Gorsuch may very well have asked uh, for it. He writes, uh, he writes beautifully. They, they all do. Uh, they're incredible writers. And I say this every year, that people really need to read these opinions, uh, if only just stylistically. Uh, these are all masters uh, of the written word. I don't know, Matt. I saw a reference no? to Veep in the, in the um, Chiafalo case. And, and by Veep, you mean the uh, television show. The television show Veep. I was like reading this opinion. I was like, wow, they put a reference to Veep in here. That's, a, you know, from, you know, when I really read through Supreme Court cases extensively was when I was in law school and they were also in some ways archaic and formal. And then, you know, just to read these modern uh, references in cases now, just I found it, uh, it really jumped out of the page for me. Yeah. Well, then I have well, a I question. Think, I, 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 I have a question about that then, Jahan. I also challenge you a little bit. Um, 
you know, uh, one of the things that Matt and I have talked about is uh, in the in past uh, Supreme Court conversations was about making these accessible <laughs> for people um, who are uh, lay people like myself. And uh, I wonder, you know, uh, what um, uh, do you think is the uh, pro and con of um, putting in uh, those uh, references that will become dated uh, if they can make the court more or the court's rulings more accessible to the people? I don't object to it so much as it just startled me. So, you're right. There, there's several in this in this opinion that's authored by Kagan. Uh, she she makes a reference to the musical Hamilton. She makes a reference. She she even puts parentheticals uh, in regards to a clause. She goes, "Don't get attached. It will soon be superseded." Almost like a funny little aside. And so uh, while I was reading this, I was really struck by the uh, almost humorous style of writing, as if I was in some ways reading an essay. Uh, so I think it, you know, you have both the law in this, but it's also uh, quite accessible. But uh, some of these older cases that may I may have characterized as archaic are, you know, I think if you read through it and you, you, you read it out loud even, you know, it they're, they're readable as well. Um, but I think this it's still very long, though. I think anyone trying to slog through these opinions is still going to find it difficult to read, even though it has some fun asides in it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Jen. Uh, and maybe we just have different tastes. I like the writing for the people. I think there's even a, uh, a Dr. Seuss reference in the case last term. But uh, one thing I saw this term as we were going through that kind of merges both of our ways of thinking is, is I think a lot of these opinions, they start with something punchy, accessible, Still good writing, but it's meant to be, you know, understood by everyone. So they, the justices tend to bookend their opinions with an intro paragraph that kind of is very press friendly, uh, for lack of a better word. It's very soundbite friendly. And then at the very end, they throw in a paragraph that is kind of very quotable and accessible. And then in between is all the talk about legal precedent and all the kind of torturous uh, reasoning that only a lawyer could love. And maybe that's done intentionally so that you can you can pick the uh, sound bites out of it, but that they still have the sort of robust uh, opinions that Jahan you know, loves from from law school days. <laughs> and what are some of the other impacts uh, that we might see uh, from what I would say is the expansion of the interpretation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964? Sure. I mean, I think in. From our position as teaching business law, it makes teaching our class on employment law a lot easier. We have for years had to parse what has come out of various circuits and what's come out of administrative agencies weighed against uh, a statute. And so we've got these kind of conflicting sources of law where now we have it's it's clear the Supreme Court has stated that Title VII now extends and protects these particular circumstances and cases. And so uh, it just it makes it clear not just for business law professors, but for employers and for employees. They know for sure that if they're being discriminated against based on their sexual orientation, based on their gendered identity, that that is going to be a viable case that they can bring before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. That's exactly right. Uh, on the other hand, you know, once we close one area of debate, we open another one. So the the discussion and debate is going to move on from, you know, can people be fired based on their sexual orientation or gender identity? Well, it seems like no. On the other hand, the Supreme Court has now opened the door to claims from employers that religious freedom allows them to do it and that their religious freedom essentially one-ups Title VII because religious freedom is a constitutional right and Title VII is a statutory right. And this is actually where I felt that the liberal wing in joining Gorsuch and Roberts and basically in, in getting those necessary uh, two votes, or at least they needed one of them, may have given a few things up. Uh, Gorsuch's opinion, which the four liberal justices signed on to and didn't, didn't write concurring opinion, it explicitly talks about religious freedom exceptions and says there may be Religious Freedom Exceptions. It specifically talks about RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which has been used by even private corporations such as Hobby Lobby to deny employees statutory benefits on the basis of religious freedom. And Gorsuch really strongly suggests that, you know, 
you, even though you may not be able to be fired for these things, that right may go out the window if your employer claims that they're doing it for religious reasons. And we have to look at Bostock case along with a case that was decided about a month later called Our Lady of Guadalupe School, where a majority of the Supreme Court said that if you are a teacher at a religious school, you essentially have no employment rights. And you have the, the normal employment laws that would apply to you do not apply to you if the reason you're being fired or sanctioned or whatever is because, or at least the school espouses religious reasons for doing that. So not only in Bostock did the conservative majority suggest that religious rights could trump uh, these new LGBT employment rights, in Our Lady of Guadalupe, they pretty much explicitly said that was the case. Uh, but in the Our Lady of Guadalupe school, uh, were they not exerting uh, what is called the ministerial exception? Uh, could that be uh, broadly uh, construed to mean that institutions or organizations that are not inherently uh, religious or affiliated to a religious organization could begin to exert that in what would commonly be considered a discriminatory act? Again, you have to be a religious institution, but it's a question of, well, what does that really mean? Uh, RIFRA says that uh, you have to have sincerely held religious beliefs, but a majority of the Supreme Court has found that Hobby Lobby, a you know, multinational corporation, at least a nationwide corporation, has religious freedom rights and has sincerely held religious beliefs. And so then the question is, does Chick-fil-A have sincerely held religious beliefs? Could they then assert the same kind of arguments? And then I guess I'm just asking about the uh, what would you have to do to uh, be able to say that you have those firmly held religious beliefs? I think those institutions or those organizations that are just mentioned, Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A, at least here in the South, are commonly given a kind of almost religious status, not simply because of the delicious chicken sandwiches they offer, uh, but because it is well known that they donate heavily towards religious institutions. They have all kinds of uh, religious uh, uh, pronouncements uh, within their stores. What about insert chicken company here? Could they start exerting these um, firmly held religious beliefs, even though you did not know about them until they had done something that could be seen as discriminatory? I think they would have a much harder case. I think you you definitely have to have evidence of the sincerely held belief. The Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A are both like family corporations or closely held corporations. They are not publicly traded. And in the Hobby Lobby case, there was definitely a distinction drawn between companies that are closely held and publicly traded. The, the argument is that a publicly traded company would not be able to assert that same religious freedom argument that a family company like Chick-fil-A is able to. Another interesting question in a place where this will, will probably end up in the courts pretty soon is, well, what if you do have, you know, we don't dispute that your religious beliefs are sincerely held, but we think they're ridiculous. Uh, you know, does this just apply to mainstream religious beliefs? Or as long as you have a track record of saying you believe these things, do we just have to accept it, uh, that that is a protected religious practice? And I talk about this in my classes, uh, the, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, uh, adherents to this religion call themselves Pastafarians, and they uh, they believe, or at least they claim to believe, that there is an invisible, all-powerful spaghetti monster that uh, created the world and, and acts as a god figure. I've got and my colander he... on my head. Do you, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So they wear colanders. They wear pasta strainers when they show up to the DMV for their driver's license photos. And when they're told, take that off, you can't wear anything on your head, they say, oh, well, would you allow me to wear a turban? Would you allow me to wear a yarmulke? If you let me wear those things, you got to let me wear my colander. Um, and they basically show up, you know, we might even call them, you know, trolling groups. But, uh, you know, they'll show up if, for example, a, uh, a state legislature allows a Christmas display, then they'll show up and say, well, in that case, you have to allow our monument to the spaghetti monster. Or the Ten Commandments uh, and, on your lawn. Well, you have to have our spaghetti monster commandments, you know. And a similar group that maybe even a little more poignant are the Satanists. And uh, they have uh, 
you know, they don't actually worship Satan. They're a group of secular humanists. But uh, when there is a Ten Commandments on a courthouse lawn, they say, well, we want to erect a monument to Satan. Uh, if you don't let us do that, you've got to take down that Ten Commandments. So it's, uh, that's, that's uh, I think, one place we're gonna ha- the Supreme Court's going to have to venture into that they've avoided so far is how do you decide whether a religion is legitimate? listening to a Supreme Court recap with Georgia College Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics, Jahan el and UGA Legal Studies Lecturer, Matt Ressing. We've got more to talk about on this edition of Georgia College Connections, so stay tuned. So I want to digress back to something we had talked about earlier, and that is the role of John Roberts. Uh, one of the big issues that has been before the courts in um, at least over the last um, years of the Trump administration has been immigration. And there was a large pronouncement about DACA. Uh, Jahan, I, I think you were going to uh, introduce us to this case and what came um, out of the ruling. Sure. Briefly, back in June of 2012, the Department of Homeland Security announced DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, so essentially a policy that allows undocumented immigrants who have come to the United States as children to obtain a two-year forbearance of removal, so a statement by the United States government that uh, they are not a priority for removal from the United States. And young people have enrolled in this program and benefited from it. They are, have since gone to college, had jobs, been trained, etc. Then on September 4th, 2017, then Attorney General Sessions prepared a memo to the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security concluding that DACA had legal defects and advised that it be rescinded. The next day, Secretary Duke uh, issued a memorandum terminating DACA, and several lawsuits were filed in federal courts um, from California, New York, Maryland, D.C., uh, challenging the termination, and it arrived before the Supreme Court in 2018. So the opinion was issued in June of this year, and uh, it was five to four, and you were mentioning Justice Roberts was the author of this opinion. This opinion does not address whether or not DACA or its rescission are sound policies or whether DACA itself is legal. What it does is simply discuss whether or not the rescission of DACA violates the Administrative Procedure Act. And so this is a law that applies to agencies' uh, conduct any time that they engage in conduct. It cannot be arbitrary and capricious. And in this particular case, uh, Justice Roberts authored, he held along with Justice Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor joined on this one, that the rescission was, in fact, arbitrary and capricious. And so basically it's a punt back to the administration to either try to rescind it another way that shows that there's grounds for the rescission, or it can engage in no action and allow it to go forward. So essentially the administration now is supposed to continue to process DOC applications, which just last week it has not. And on the other side of the coin, it has not taken any action to try to do away with DACA again. And so in that act of punting it back, as you said, it did not really say whether or not uh, DACA was enforceable uh, as it was or that um, the administration erred in trying to rescind it. It just said that it was not done in a proper way. And so, really, there was no finality to the question of the fate of those young people and their legal status in this country. Well, there's currently no 
effort to do away with it or cancel it, though I imagine those people continue to hold their breath considering what had happened in the past. In the dissent, both Justice Thomas and Alito did deem DACA unlawful. So you can see where their position is and whether or not the lawfulness of DACA will appear before the Supreme Court. At least there's two who clearly say it is. And in the sense that um, this almost it's a delay, it kind of it has the effect of creating a more contentious 2020 election. And I believe that the, there was a, a several cases that the Supreme Court looked at that uh, this term that actually, you know, just add, you know, fuel to the fire of an extremely contentious election uh, coming forth. Uh, can you talk about other ways, perhaps, that this Supreme Court uh, term uh, will have consequences that will play out in these waning months of 2020? Well, there's the faithless elector case. I don't know if you're you were trying to get at that, but there was a, a nine to zero decision, a, so a unanimous decision on the Supreme Court in regards to our electoral college. And in the in two recent elections, the presidential candidate who received the popular vote was not the winner ultimately because the electoral college ended up going in favor of the other candidate. And so, uh, most recently, the Trump Clinton election fell that way. Clinton won millions of more votes, yet the Electoral College is what ultimately selects the president. And so the particular case is Chiafalo versus Washington, and it was basically originated from three Electoral College members out of Washington who desired to vote for someone else other than who Washington had elected. So typically the way it's supposed to go is that the popular vote in the state, uh, then the uh, the members of the Electoral College will then vote that way. Um, so if, say, Georgia votes for Trump, then those electoral votes will go to Trump. Um, these particular people in Washington said, we want to encourage people that went Republican that they should be able to vote whoever they want to. If they don't think Trump should be the president, then we're going to vote for someone else. They were Democrats. We're not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. We're going to vote for someone else. And to show that just to encourage other people to do it. Well, in, in the last election, actually seven people voted opposite of the way they were supposed to. And so that was challenged. Um, not only were they going against what their state rules said, but Washington has a sanction. You get a $1,000 fine. Not only are you are removed, but you also get a fine, and they were challenging the fine itself. And so the, the question in that particular uh, case is whether or not a state can penalize an elector for breaking his or her pledge. And the court agreed that um, a state can penalize an elector. And so I don't know if this makes it any more contentious, but certainly we still have the case or the, the procedure that our president is selected by the members of the Electoral College, and that they can be compelled to vote uh, according to the state. Well, and I want to bring up um, another uh, case that kind of is a throwback to the 2016 election, but will have a large um well, actually, I, I take that back. It won't have a large impact on the 2020 election, but that's the issue of the president's taxes. Um, here we are uh, three and a half years later, and uh, we, we still have yet to see the president's taxes, but uh, there is the chance that we may in the future. Uh, might y'all talk about how the Supreme Court talked about the president's taxes? So by way of background, you know, presidential candidates are not required to release their tax information. There's no law requiring it, but traditionally they have done so for a number of years. It has become uh, a precedent, in other words. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, kind of a social precedent. It's not a moral precedent that the, this is something the public wants to see in making a decision about you. Now, Trump bucked that president, as he does you know, many precedents, and said, he didn't say I'm not going to do it, but he, he delayed. He said, I can't show them to you now, I'll show them to you later. Uh, and then after the election, made the argument, well, people didn't really care. They voted for me anyway, so I, you know, they, they, don't, they don't mind that I, I'm not showing my taxes. 
That said, there's still a lot of people that want to see what's in them. And the Supreme Court uh, agreed to take two cases that was relevant to that. Uh, one was called Trump v. Mazars, USA, and that dealt with a subpoena by the House of Representatives, which is controlled by Democrats. And they said, we need to see your financial records, including your taxes. You know, they gave a bunch of different reasons why they wanted to do that, but they essentially said, uh, we want to investigate whether our current ethics laws and conflict of interest laws are adequate. So we basically need to know everything you're up to, you've been up to, so that we can determine whether we need stricter, you know, perhaps presidential restrictions on running businesses well in office. Around the same time, there was a, a separate subpoena issued by a Manhattan district attorney for law enforcement purposes. And this was all wrapped up in the Stormy Daniels scandal, where the president's attorney, Michael Cohen, was accused of and later uh, admitted to uh, essentially paying off this adult film star to keep her quiet about an affair that she allegedly had with the president. So that may be uh, a crime. Uh, we never really found out in the Cohen case because he essentially pled guilty to that part of it. But the idea is that it might have been some sort of campaign finance violation. And if, uh, if it was, then the president or Trump may have been implicated as well. So this Manhattan district attorney is investigating for that. So we have two different people, both wanting Trump financial records, including taxes, for different reasons. And then we have a large body of the general public that wants to see them just for reasons of curiosity or maybe to, you know, maybe that will influence their vote in the 2020 election. Uh, the Trump organization opposed these subpoenas. They weren't subpoenas directly to Trump. They were subpoenas to his outside accounting firms. And on behalf of them, Trump basically said, no, you can't do that. And one of the arguments they made, the one at issue here, is that you, you got, the president is immune from these type of subpoenas. Uh, you, you can't subpoena a president while he's in office. And that's what the Supreme Court decided in these two cases. Now, they waited until almost the very end of the term to issue their opinion. And often we see very consequential or controversial cases delayed until the end of the term. Due to coronavirus, the term was actually longer than usual, so it created a lot of drama and expectation around this ruling. And uh, the result was actually, I think, pretty disappointing if you were expecting some big ruling or consequential ruling from the Supreme Court. But I, I do want to push forth on, um, again, my theme of Robert's Rules of Order, in which he kind of clapped back at the president. Uh, in fact, I have a quote from uh, Robert. It says, in our system, the public has a right to every man's evidence. And since the founding of the republic, every man has included the president of the United States. And so, uh, again, we have this sense that the chief justice of the Supreme Court is exerting his ideas of the order and you know the way that our you know society should interact um, with its government. But on a, on a down note, as you mentioned, does it really matter? Because we won't find out until after the election in November. I think it matters to Roberts, uh, and this goes into a few themes we've discussed. He does not want to be seen as you know Trump's toady. Uh, he doesn't want to be seen as a, uh, a wing of the Republican Party. He wants to be seen as an independent judge that you know, happens to have a conservative uh, ideology but is there to do his job. And he wants the Supreme Court to have respect as an institution and not be seen as nakedly partisan. So one thing we've seen again and again is he's often willing to give uh, you know, these uh, federal agencies or the president the benefit of the doubt, but he's not willing to basically rubber stamp things. And we saw that in the DACA case. We saw that in these cases. We saw it in last term census case uh, where, you know, he says, you know, these arguments you're making are, you know, in some cases ridiculous or go too far. There's um, a lot of discussion going now on now in the legal community about what this means going forward. Typically arguments made by pres the presidents and, and particularly arguments made by the Justice Department in uh, cases. So when the Solicitor General you know, makes an argument on behalf of the government, or when the Department of Justice makes arguments on behalf of the government, typically judges have given a lot of deference to those arguments. 
uh, you know, they, they get the benefit of the doubt, in part because they were seen as somewhat independent institutions. You know, they wouldn't, these lawyers at least, would not be making these arguments with a straight face unless there was something to it. There's questions about whether that trust is being eroded in the Trump administration, whether Department of Justice lawyers have made some arguments that are just beyond the pale to the point where the Supreme Court and other courts may stop giving all you know, federal prosecutors the sort of deference they were given in prior cases. And the census case is an example of that. In fact, we've even seen cases where the Trump administration changed their position and wanted to advance a new legal argument, and the, the Department of Justice lawyers that had been on the case essentially resigned and said, well, I'm not going to make that argument. You're going to have to find somebody else. So you might say, you know, why not push it? Like when my students, Jahan probably sees this too, often my students will say, you know, hey, uh, can I have an extension on that test? Or, you know, can I get an extra credit? And then when I, I say no, they say, well, I'm just asking the question. You know, it never hurts to ask. And I think we have to question whether it hurts to ask in this point, whether bringing up kind of radical legal theories only to get rejected by the Supreme Court has a degrading effect on the respect of the lawyers that make arguments on behalf of the government. Well, but then I just I just have to ask the question. You've uh, talked about almost a, um, a vacuum uh, that has been um, opened up by the Justice Department under the Trump administration. Is uh, Chief Justice John Roberts and, by and large, the rest of the Supreme Court doing a good job guarding against that loss of credibility within their institution? I'm really curious what Roberts does over the next three or four years, whether that's a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency. I think he has been extremely protective this term. And I think part of that is to not be seen as favoring certain political party, particularly in a, in a big contested election year. Ironically, though, I think Roberts, in trying to put some daylight between himself and Trump, has actually maybe boosted Trump's candidacy in some eyes. Uh, I think there's quite a percentage of conservatives that may not be completely on board the Trump train, but really like the fact that he has been effective in putting conservative judges on courts. And there's no question that he has been incredibly successful in transforming the judiciary and putting much more conservative justices all throughout the federal judiciary, uh, not to speak of the two Supreme Court justices that he put on there. And with Roberts showing maybe a little independence from the conservative marching orders, in some ways, I, you know, if he, had, if he had cited, if he had a string of 5-4 opinions, all very conservative opinions, uh, you know, there may have been Republicans that said, okay, we got the Supreme Court we wanted, you know, we don't necessarily need another four years of Trump. But if Roberts is seen as some sort of traitor or swing vote, that may lead people to say, oh, we, we need another justice. We need two more justices. We need Trump back just to get that, supreme, that solid conservative majority we thought we had. So that's just some of my thoughts kind of spinning around in my head. But, uh, but I, I am very curious whether uh, you know, Roberts' efforts to be less partisan will actually lead to a more partisan result. Well, I guess we will leave it at that. Uh, Matt Ressing, Jahan el I want to thank you all for joining me today on um, this, uh, again, a Supreme Court edition of Georgia College Connections. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight, we talked about the most recent term of the Supreme Court of the United States with Georgia College Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics, Jahan el and UGA Legal Studies Lecturer, Matt Ressing. On behalf of WRGC 88.3 FM, I have been your host, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for tuning in to this edition of Georgia College Connections. I hope you enjoyed our time together this evening, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you again next time.